0: Get a shot in honor of Space Jam, A New Legacy and LeBron James's refusal to say if he's vaccinated, what cartoon character (laughs) would you want to hang out with?
1: Uh, I'm Katie Rich. I'm going to say Bugs Bunny entirely because thanks to our friend Joanna Robinson, I've learned that he was based on Clark Gable's character from It Happened One Night. And I want to hang out with Clark Gable. Therefore, I want to hang out with Bugs Bunny. Does
2: Clark Gable eat a lot of carrots?
1: He does. He has noteworthy carrot eating. Uh, And apparently that this is how we got the myth that bunnies love carrots.
2: Wow. Okay. Um, Matt Patch is here uh, I'm going to go with Totoro because I want to take a nap on that belly
0: <laughs> Hey it's me David7 I'm taking Jake from Adventure Time because I can take a nap on that belly but also he makes uh, literally the best food
2: Pancakes Make a pan And the cake. ultimate Make a sandwich pancakes.
1: Gentlemen you can't fight in here This is the war room Fine I can hear you now Dimitri Clear and plain and coming through
2: fine I'm coming through fine,
3: too, eh? Good. Then, well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine.
0: Good. Well,
3: it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's 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 a podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 356. It's Pandemic 69. It's the week of Wednesday, July 14th. That's the day that in 1969, Dennis Hopper's Easy Rider was released. Congratulations to all of us. We did it. Pandemic. Is it a pandemic? Not is over. it Still a pandemic. I don't know, man. The Delta variant makes me feel like the pandemic is going to be the rest of our lives. Still, what are still you going?
2: I mean, I look. Uh, this is not the place to blow this up, but I mean, if you're vaccinated, there's really good reason to think that you're not. You don't have to worry that much about the Delta variant. No, I you mean, get actually... the del... You could still get COVID while you're vaccinated. That's what I... is... I'm, I'm. Currently baffled by how many people are like the vaccine did not cure me and i still got covid of course this is but you you have a cough or you're like you're sick but you're not going to the hospital that's there's a big difference this is this is
1: why it's still pandemic i guess cuz we're still I guess we're just always Marianne.
2: in the pandemic then because it's not going to go uh, away uh I may. Mean, hey, we're vaccinated. As we saw Everyone the numbers, should be vaccinated. Get vaccinated. As we saw the numbers climb up for
0: episodes, why we didn't feel bad? Why are we feeling bad that the pandemic numbers are climbing? It's sixty-nine, up? man.
2: It just gets. We've under been your around skin. for.
0: We've been around for sixty-nine weeks, putting up with this shit, and look, we still got a show. New I movies mean. are out. It's
1: true.
2: There's a lot. We might of, even see some, a some lot the of the new stuff. I mean, a movie Life goes just made on. like almost hundred million dollars. I don't you know, know if you what. Guys- Uh, People are done with giving us reviews, though, apparently.
1: Well, I was going to say David's in France watching movies as a evidence that the pandemic is uh, is changing. Uh, But yeah, also, apparently people aren't leaving us reviews. And uh, I guess my Royals talk wasn't boring enough. So Patches has a dumb question to ask instead. And this might be too entertaining as well.
2: But I just figured that. From, we were we were debating we like what my what, what, like, boring thing I would talk about if we didn't get reviews was and i I assume that it's anything that I would talk about uh for our listeners that... well
0: here's the thing if it ends up being interesting, <laughs> like Katie and the Royals, if we get a, no reviews next week we we will bring back star wars galaxy <laughs> that's, that's right <laughs> we know what threat. stick
2: works here's my potentially boring uh mundane question which made my parents' brains ooze out of their head this weekend, which was um how do things become out of fashion. Here's what my point. So my parents oh, in the early 90s like they redid their family room or something and it had green carpet and it had like a marble counter thing. And they were talking about how they would never want to they would it, that would they would never put that in a room today. It would be so ugly looking. Um but they did get they did like it enough to put it in their home in the 90s. Now, if you like something at one point in your life why would you not like it at another point in your life you still liked it aesthetically at uh, early in your earlier in your life so are we at the mercy of trends and where do these trends come from i don't really understand why we why why something looks old fashioned or something that we think that we put there would look ugly today but it does mm. like we look at things in our in homes we would go into like a grandparents home and be like this is such a grandparents home but why is it falling out of fashion? Why did they think it was a good idea at some point? How, like, it doesn't make sense. What are well, trends? I'm going to guess
0: that the, especially what you're talking about in terms of like style inside the home, uh, so much of that is based on like um, greater trends of what is possible. So let's take your grandparents' house, right? They probably take my grandparents' point, house,
2: please.
0: Hey. Uh, depending on what age they were, they maybe have like a freestanding television was old piece of furniture and then had to maybe go to a television that was like on a stand. And maybe now they have a flat screen television that's going to change the layout of an entire room. Same for like loungewear, different types of fabrics. What amount of plastic you want in your home fabrics for cleaning or upkeep sort of capabilities. I feel like it, it's that
2: less than people like caving to pressure. Here's another example that might put that might frame the conversation in a slightly different way. What color is your car, Katie? gray do you have a car, Dave? Yeah, what color is it? It's white, right, so you don't in the nineties or even in the early 2000s there were like a lot of different colored cars there were you would see just like purple cars, blue cars, and we were a movie we will talk about later on this episode, No sudden Move has like a lot of different colored cars from the nineteen fifties They look cool. Mm-hmm. You do not see lots of colored cars anymore like the v w beetle that they reinvented in the 2000s like that the whole idea or the iMac computers colors 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 you do not see that anymore why I not we love back. colors i can... i was always told don't have a red car
0: because cops pick that out of a crowd
1: wow it's like that's, there's the red fucking car um i was gonna read meryl Streep's cerulean monologue from double double wrist prada as my answer to this question <laughs> but that's uh, i don't know that might be also better boring But no, people are trained to want novelty. You see something cool that somebody has and you want that. Like there are a lot of things that are consistent for us in our taste, but a lot of aesthetic taste we are susceptible to peer pressure and to what we see and our desire for novelty, and that's how trends happen. Kinda simple, I think.
2: But why don't we why don't we want like a bright blue car? Do you like what's your favorite color? What it's the same reason color?
1: that you wouldn't name your child Harriet right now, but someone in 20 years might because they work on a cycle like the way that like if, if it's something that your parents had. You don't want it. If it's something that your cool friend has, you do want it.
2: I and feel so like you patches... work in a generational okay, cycle. Take the name Harriet off my list of second child options. So you're <laughs> that off the list. No, no, buck the trend patches. <laughs> I, I feel like your question is more like
0: I used to like cheese sandwiches as a child. Why do I not like cheese sandwiches anymore? Well, or like, no, blue it's definitely used to be not my favorite color. Taste... <laughs> literal taste does change what there's nothing part of i my car is my favorite color that says adult to me i have a car <laughs> it's a color like why would my car be my favorite color
2: that's why a weird way to your think car about the world be your favorite color uh,
0: i don't know i have action figures that i obviously have invested in so maybe if i was invested in cars i would you know be more into this conversation but i feel like as you also you're either like susceptible to trends and certain things or you just lock into certain areas that you care about.
2: I don't know about don't, countertops. Countertops does seem don't, like something. I don't want to feel manipulated by a trend. I want to be are, able to you like You are. Them. I know.
1: okay Now, now I'm going to get out the monologue again. You think this stuff has nothing to do with you. You go to your closet. You select out, oh, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back. But it's not what you, it's what you don't know is that sweater is not just blue, it's not turquoise, it's not lapis, it's actually cerulean. You're, actually, you're also blindly unaware of the fact that in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns. Yada, yada, yada. That blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs, and so it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice. It exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact you're wearing the sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff.
2: Damn. Scorched earth. Thank you. you yeah.
1: can't get away from it, man.
2: It works. That's what I got. It's a, a
0: spoilers for no sudden move. Maybe that's how America works.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is how Patches turns this podcast into the sophisticates.
2: Yeah. Dreams do come true. <laughs>
0: Marvel movies are back in theaters, baby. Uh, not saying it's uh, Spider-Man: Far From Home. If we had a new installment in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that wow. is actually movies. Uh, this is the only other time we had a year without a Marvel movie was uh, twenty well two thousand nine
2: no. two thousand nine. Oh. After, right after Iron
0: opera. Man, right after Iron Man, because it took two years to make Iron Man Two, and they didn't want to they didn't want to hedge too many bets uh, before that first success. Uh, but yeah, uh, Marvel movies are back. This installment is Kate Shortland's directed, Scarlett Johansson uh, starring Black Widow, the Black Widow movie that everybody said that they wanted uh, since she showed up in Iron Man Two and was a successful introduction of an Avenger in an Iron Man movie uh now she's she's back this movie is set in between civil war and avengers infinity war
2: it's actually set during captain america civil war it is not it's set, set, set really between movies. the credits
0: of captain america civil war before the end credit scene but after the last scene of the movie right
1: uh uh, remind me what happens in in America*. They all fight on the tarmac in that one. They
0: all fight on the tarmac, specifically <laughs> as it applies to this movie. Black Widow allows Bucky and Steve to get away to fight Zemo by electrocuting T'Chaka, who is T'Challa, who is um, the Black Panther and a diplomat. So she is wanted. Yeah, this by movie opens. William with hurts American government.
2: Natasha in a bathroom, or no? Mm-hmm. They think. She's in a bathroom. William Hurt is there chasing her down.
0: Well, she's of, in a bathroom. I
2: can't believe how many they,
1: Marvel movies William Hurt has managed to be in. Just a sidebar, but like he's still around after his entire like version of the franchise was scrapped. It's amazing. He's here
0: for three total minutes. Good for him for picking up that paycheck. This is our uh, second
2: straight episode talking about William Hurt movies because he's uh, in AI. So we're now the <laughs> Hurt cast. <laughs>
1: I'm honored to be her No, guest.
0: surely we have a sh- some other shared... Uh, we have another shared person in this podcast. This is the David Harbour podcast. Oh, right. That's
1: right. That's right. Uh,
0: anyway, uh, I guess to jump ahead. Uh, after she's on the run, she uh, happens across a MacGuffin object sent to her by her little sister that we haven't met before, played by Flores Pugh. Her name's Yelena. What she was that? She has a very that- good...
2: What was the MacGuffin object? Was that the... like? It's a gas that deprograms Black (laughs) Widows. (laughs) That is so glot. Like that is the least consequential MacGuffin in any Marvel movie ever. It's just like here's some gas.
1: Marvel movies love a MacGuffin.
0: They
2: do, but this one is barely barely registers.
0: It brings her in contact with her old family, which were like the American sleeper agents in Ohio in the 90s, uh, where they extracted some mind control information. From S.H.I.E.L.D., which was, of course, secretly that time Hydra, if you care about the MCU. If you don't care about the MCU, this is like a James Bond movie starring Black Widow uh, with a ridiculous third act that takes things to Marvel's cinematic phase two proportions where everything fell out of the sky in the third act. That's what happens here. Uh, But that sort of fits. And I think the lightness and the way they're sort of depthly able to treat this not necessarily as a Black Widow solo movie... But more like Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, like a handing off of a mantle. What a sell. Uh, is, is really kind of uh, amazing.
1: <laughs> we just watched Indiana Jones and the Crypt- Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Are you sure you want to make that comparison?
0: I'm trying to think about one that worked. And so there's like Indiana Jones, there's Tron Legacy, there's Wall Street Money Never Sleeps. That's just Shia LaBeouf. I'm in a Shia LaBeouf hole. Uh, it's hard <laughs> to do in a
2: Shia hole. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh it's hard, but not holes. <laughs>
0: Just ah. a child a
2: so you're saying Yelena, played by Florence Pugh in this movie, is the Mutt Williams of oh, the Marvel yeah. Universe. Okay. Yeah, she is. And it's really good. It works. I like that.
0: Um, I think because this is a version of a character who uh, will take up the mantle of Black Widow, it seems like, or potentially could, even though there are lots of widows at the end of this movie. Um, she seems to have a good point of view. She has a good rapport with Scarlett Johansson, which obviously she won't be used going forward since that character is dead. Uh, but unlike Black Widow the first time through, this was a character that had to be kind of put together in other people's movies, sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully, in like something like Avengers Age of Ultron. Um, and this movie sort of owns all that and then spits out Yelena as a version that didn't have to go through all that sexist bullshit with a bunch of male writers. She just gets one movie with one male writer and kind of comes out much more fully formed. Uh she's quippy, she's a badass, uh very much better Russian accent than most people in the movie. I think uh Florence Pugh's really the discovery here. And what otherwise is like I, I think I compared the movie to Goldeneye, Pierce Brosnan Goldeneye. I was about to
2: say when you call it a Bond movie, there's a lot of different types of Bond movies it could be. Yes. But it is very specifically the Brosnan era like it kind of teeters on the die another day but i think it's safely in the golden eye mode
0: it does get uh, it does um elevate in a way that i would say is more die another day if this wasn't also a marvel cinematic universe movie like it could have been so much worse in terms of it does of...
2: have a floating fortress where yes. ray winston mm-hmm. programs black widow super spies for seemingly no purpose uh he has been amassing super spies but does not conduct any business with them uh, it's a very strange plan. <laughs> he's a to super do spy hoarder. He is a spy hoarder. He's not. He's not like. <laughs> he doesn't have a plot. He's not like. I'm going to take down the governments. He's just like. I have widows all over the world, and if I press his button, they could do something. Don't make me use them. Don't make me. Don't, use maybe, them. don't make me press the button. Don't make me press this button. <laughs> Uh, Ray
1: Winston, also a Kingdom of the Crystal Skull connection. Oh, yeah, you're right.
2: Uh, Ray Winston, I feel like I haven't seen him in a movie in a while. Not that he has much to do here, but he is is a threatening force. There is a scene... I mean, we're going to get a little into spoilers here, I think, because it really feels like a movie without spoilers. I don't know. There's no big reveal except for maybe the identity of the (laughs) The, bad guy, Taskmaster.
0: Their biggest reveal is hidden in a monologue in The Avengers. Which is the weirdest thing, and they put it in like the Marvel Legends clip on Disney Plus to like remind everybody. Wait,
2: I don't even know what you're talking about. Should we talk about this at the end of the segment so that it's sure, sure, sure? We'll do it right at the end of the segment. Um, but anyway, Ray Winston's character has this—he he he, like implanted pheromones in people in the in Mm -hmm. the widows so that they can't punch him. Seems like
1: a bad guy kind of thing.
2: No, it's definitely bad, and I actually think that the movie does a really good job. And maybe I'm, I'm drinking Kate Shoreland's Kool-Aid here, having spoken to her a little bit, and she is a dynamic, extraordinary person. I could have talked to her for, for hours, I think, about making a movie as, like, base as this. <laughs> um, but, like, there's a real threat. I, I don't think there's, like, big, big, great set pieces in this movie, but the violence feels pretty visceral. I was surprised how violent... The movie felt and how the threats toward, especially toward women, um, feel very real in this movie. I think it does a good job. This movie feels like the most dangerous, most PG thirteen teetering into our territory that Marvel has ever gone. I w- I would not recommend showing this to kids who like Marvel movies. This is not. Uh, this is not for kids who like Guardians of the Galaxy and stuff like that.
0: Maybe I think this is well. First of all, like this I was like Winter like Soldier,
2: te- but more violent.
0: I, think. I, I was like what. Uh, 12 when gold and i came out like no i don't think you're i think your ages are a little bit off i do think this movie rides a line very well where there's constantly it sets up situations where if you're an adult and you know the world there's a threat of sexual violence these Mm -hmm. women are being trafficked not specifically for that purpose they never say that but the imagery is there the discussion of, like, forced sterilization is there. Well, yeah, it's,
2: let's let's talk about what and, this movie does really, really well, which is both yeah. the disturbing and hilarious at the same time. My favorite scene in the movie um, is uh, David Harbour is in the movie as kind of the Russian version of Captain America who's gone to shit. Like, he has a big gut and he's in prison, but he is a super soldier and can beat everyone in arm wrestling. And um, he's very funny in this movie. Uh, and when they break him out of prison, he gets on the ship and is wondering why Yelena is curt with him, I guess, or straightforward. He's like, are you on? Is it your time of month? Like the worst joke ever. And Yelena, Florence Pugh, fires back about, well, actually, I don't have a period because the Red Room gave me an involuntary uh, hysterectomy. And I don't have a menstruation. I do not menstruate. And they, they um, chop and it's like, holy uterus. shit. That's like, and it, and she keeps going, and it's really graphic, and it's hilarious the way he plays it um and I, I just I think that's where this movie works really well, where it's like dealing really confrontational about the trauma of the red room that's been hinted at a bunch um and then really being funny about it, like everyone it's it's the family dynamic is. Really strong. I think Rachel Vice doesn't get a whole lot to do. I, I wish she was in the movie a little more. I was
1: just going to say, I feel like people haven't talked about her much.
2: She's not. She doesn't. I mean, she does raise pigs, which is mm. very funny. Um, And she's very cute with the pigs.
0: <laughs> very funny. And her and very Harper get some good stuff
2: in the third. Her and the
0: pigs are terrifying. I don't know what you're talking uh, about.
2: She's funny. In like the So the the final third of the movie is them breaking into the Red Room, which is a big floating fortress. And she and Harper have some some good riffs, and it's it's a little more Mission Impossible than Bond at a certain point, or mm. um, you know, Bond, I'm trying to think, did Bond ever have, like, a crew? I guess a, a little bit in these later Daniel Craig movies, but not so much, but um, good Mission Impossible banter and, uh, like, what, everyone has a different mission to take down the Red Room, Florida Fortress, but you know who doesn't track in this movie at all, who does not exist in this movie at all? Scarlett Johansson.
1: You haven't brought her up yet, either, really? This
2: movie... I I mean I was thoroughly entertained, but she is like a non-presence. I really can't think of a great scene that she has. She has a fight with Taskmaster, the the the, the villain who can match your every move on a bridge, and like that's her big fight scene. But she is playing backup to every other person's funny it's, dialogue it's, or bigger it, action it, scene it, or monologues.
0: I thought at first it was the script's fault, but it's the entire movie's fault. Uh, there'll be time periods that you're really focused and you're like, man, Scarlett Johansson's doing some acting here, and you're like, I kind of like it. But then, like, two minutes later, they're like, oh, that was a ruse. And you're like, okay. And there's a couple rehearsals writer. like that right towards the end, and you're like, did anything that I watch, was any of this real emotion? Like, they negate any sort of actual stakes for her very early on, I feel like.
1: Why do you think that's... Are they trying to just take the emphasis off of her so they can establish all these new characters? So why is that? Yeah,
2: I think, I think it's they, a handoff movie. Well, I think they thought they were giving weight to all of the other movies. And maybe they have. Like, I haven't gone back and watched Endgame or watched her arcs in in various other movies. And, you know, they explore the Budapest situation. Like, every time she brings up Budapest in passing with with Hawkeye, will I feel differently about those moments? I don't know. Maybe it has shaded avengers 2012 in a a totally different way um but the one thing that i went
0: like ah when it popped up in the movie is when yelena showed up and talked about why she liked her vest because i remember when natasha's costume came out for infinity war we were all talking how the vest was sort of out of character for her and the movie kind of like folds that in so it's like a little little handoffs like if you're really paying attention but this isn't a showcase for black widow like it would have been if it were the first female starring MCU movie. Hmm. This right. this is a this is a world building. Not only that,
2: they make fun thing. of her past performances. Like there's a whole very funny bit up that uh Florence Pugh has where she's like, Hey, you do the uh the pose. Every time you go into battle, you do the Black Widow pose and <laughs> It's like, yes, you do, and it is hilarious that you're making fun of her. But I'm like, it's really dragging down Scarlett Johansson's time here. It's, it's, it's attempting to deepen the character while completely diffusing her with other great characters. Um, and I guess it's a little disappointing in that way. It wasn't something I was thinking about while watching it, but it's not a star vehicle for Scarlett Johansson, which is strange. Um,
0: it's like a vehicle where everybody could come back except her. Like even the villain like he could potentially like any of the villains I think in this movie could potentially show up again any of her like extended family that's left alive by the end could show up like later the only one that can't show up from this franchise now is the person who's it's her titular mo- debut movie um, you know, it's not weird her I gravestone
2: don't... could come back Well you no, can tell me
1: true. this is a spoiler like does it end in a way that that's definitive like they could put more movies in between other Avengers movies. No, they already made those
2: movies, unfortunately.
1: (laughs) So it's like definitely she's not going to be in another one of these?
0: The end credit scene is definitely uh, Yelena at her grave after Endgame. Get ready for
2: Hawkeye on Disney Plus, Katie, Uh, for more Yelena action. Uh, Actually,
0: if you never get around to doing this, uh, I think the greatest revelation I had after watching Black Widow was, first of all, it wasn't bad. The second one was oh my god the hawkeye series is going to be like two, like the the new black widow and the new hawkeye fighting like give give me that i want to see that series now much more than i did when news it was about clint right
1: who who is <laughs> the new hawkeye there's a new hawkeye
0: haley yeah haley Steinfeld.
2: stanfield
1: isn't jeremy ritter in it though
2: yes he is he's the Guys? old hawkeye
1: I was just sitting here thinking about how I should finish Loki with the episodes I haven't seen. My MCU knowledge is really flagging. It's
2: dribbling. Yeah. You're, you're burning out here. Oh, no. It's yeah.
1: hard, you guys. There's a lot of it.
2: Loki isn't going to make it easier. No. no. Loki's gonna <laughs> I make don't
1: think Loki's going to help me with any of this, but I enjoyed Loki, so we I would like to watch that. yeah
2: have Maybe next week. Um, is, Dave, it, is this week no. the finale? Yeah. This is the finale yeah. Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave, to wrap up, two things. We'll get yeah. back to our big spoiler here, but... My one question for you as a MCU history guru, wasn't Mm -hmm. Robert Downey Jr. supposed to be in this movie? Wasn't there a whole thing about Tony Stark showing up? Or am I making that up?
0: Uh, They were going to use, initially, they were were given the option to use uh, unused footage from Civil War that he shot, uh, basically like alternate takes of when he sends um, Natasha off. He's like, they're going to be after you now. Um, Mm, So just kind of like
2: bookend stuff.
0: Yeah, they were not going to bring Robert Downey Jr. back and pay him more money to be in this movie. Once this movie locked, uh, it locked, I think, right, it locked pre-pandemics. Uh, and from what I understand and what they've been saying, they just didn't touch it, you know, for a year.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, so what is this mysterious spoiler from a different movie?
0: Uh, Loki's when he's listing off things that are read on Natasha's letter, the ledger. The first thing he says is Drakov's daughter, and I was like, "Oh, oh interesting that you oh. put the identity of Taskmaster as like in the Avengers." A lot of this movie manages to build off of what Joss Whedon laid down in the Avengers, while skipping over Age of Ultron, which ended up being kind of
2: a a fun bit. Although Age of Ultron is what establishes the Red Room, is this like terrifying. What's interesting about the movie, again, does not care about Scarlett Johansson that much. There's no flashbacks of her, really, in the Red Room. We get a an intro, we get a kind of a montage, credits montage, where we see her growing up in training. But, but we don't get that, we don't see much of her, like, her trauma. And obviously, it's a choice. Maybe she, she has dealt with it, and now she deal, has to deal with it in a new way that's connected to her surrogate family. But I did think it was interesting. It's like, Again,
0: also a... you you can't show somebody the red room, the audience in the red room, and then be like, also it, there's a floating one. Like I feel like that. Yeah, would that have gone. Be.
2: Black Widow. It's out in theaters and Disney Plus Premier Access. If you want to pay thirty dollars, which I keep thinking is a lot, but when you do the math, I guess I don't know if you're watching. You had at like home with two if you people, had like
1: one other group of people over, yeah, it'd pay for itself so pretty quickly. Not that much. But I did not. I still haven't seen it.
2: But it's out, and it's, it's out. Big, I
0: guess it's one of four Marvel movies, right? Three Marvel movies we're getting this year.
2: We're getting Black yeah. Widow, we're getting Shang-Chi, and then we're getting Eternals. Oh, and we're getting Spider-Man, and then we're getting Spider-Man, No way, 4. way home. Wow.
0: Ah, four Marvel movie year. It's gonna be fun.
2: Fun.
1: <laughs> All right, you set up Can real quick, sure. All right, we're gonna hear a dispatch from David from Can and French uh, dispatch. I s- a French dispatch from France. Um but I wanted to just uh sound like a bunch of American Yahoos real quick. Uh anyone have any hot takes on movies from Can they haven't seen yet?
2: Um what is yours?
1: Uh that I don't think I'm gonna like the French dispatch based on what other people are saying. Everyone's like, it's one of Wes Anderson's most technically accomplished but emotionally distant movies. I'm mean, like, no, pass. Wow. <laughs> I'm sure it will look great. I just like Wes Anderson movies without feelings is not something that uh, I'm... Gonna, I mean, I'm sure I will see it. And the idea of Frances McDormand and Timothy Chalamet having a tour fair, go for it. Uh, but it does not sound like my thing.
2: I mean, I'm definitely disappointed that Annette, the uh, Sparks musical by Leo Karan, is not going over so hot. But yeah. you know what? Polarizing reactions are better than Universal reactions. So I'm... I
1: actually look forward to us fighting about this in the war room in August because I have a feeling I'm not going to like it either and you might love it.
2: We'll see. I need to watch the Sparks documentary first and really guzzle, Dig into guzzle that. my Sparks. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, Dave, anything anything on in Cannes uh, reaching your radar? Nope. I'm hoping that David's about to fill me in on that sort of thing so
0: I don't have to pay attention because I have not been... I did see a headline that was something like Out of Driver lights up cigarette during eight minutes standing ovation. That so, does like,
1: sound like exactly what would filter through to you. You're
0: <laughs> like, good for him. I'm glad he's living his post Kylo Ren best life.
1: <laughs> he's well, in France, that's what you do. Yeah.
2: Let's uh let's get a David monologue. How do you say monologue in French? Uh probably mon-mon. monologue. Monologue. Mono.
1: Don't.
3: everybody. I'm here. I'm here looking into a refrigerator somewhere in the south of France and feeling very sorry for myself because there's nothing to eat and I miss my toddler very much at home. Uh, Welcome to the least pitiable dispatch from France, a French dispatch, if you will, from the 2021 Cannes Film Festival. You will hear in the background right now not the sounds of Europeans in small cars bombing down the uh, narrow roadways of France with flags waving out of their windows, uh, but the sound of uh, your humble correspondent poking around for the panna cotta that he bought from a restaurant called Poke Mama this afternoon that looks suspicious at best. Uh, it is Monday night at the Cannes Film Festival, which started last Tuesday and will continue through this coming weekend. I am leaving on Thursday. Um, I am already at the point where I would crawl over broken glass to get back to my wife and son, both of whom inevitably got very sick as soon as I left, making their lives even more difficult with only one pair of hands around. Uh, But as much as I'm sure you all care about that, uh, I'm here to report on the, the state of things. Um... And where to begin? It's it's the first major festival. It's being held entirely in person with no virtual element since the start of the pandemic, uh, and uh, there are definitely a few interesting kinks in that process. Um, you know, for the most part, can is running as usual, uh, but with but with masks everywhere, which are inevitably being pulled down below people's noses as soon as the lights go down, um, but. While members of the European Union or citizens of the European Union have a QR code that allows them to scan right into the Pele American visitors and those from other countries uh, that are not in the EU uh, don't even if we're fully vaccinated because as any Americans listening to this know you don't get a QR code with your vaccine and even the Excelsior one that I may have gotten from my um, New York State app does not apply here. So you got to go get a COVID test. You got to spit what feels like uh you know the full contents of your body's liquid mass into a little funnel every 48 hours uh, and then maybe if you're lucky they will email or they will email you a QR code that you can keep um it has not always been super reliable and that email comes with like a second email and a third email and passwords cascading on passwords films within films which has been a theme here so far this year um but other than that it's it's kind of business as usual with a feeling of like a pebble in somebody's shoe that something is slightly amiss maybe the town is just empty i mean the uh there is a fraction of the people that are usually at this festival um even though it's still sort of overtaken this quiet seaside town um it's still kind of night and day from just the teeming hordes that are usually here uh, but there is a real enthusiasm for these movies you know, to go from, from the movies that we've been dealing with for the last 18 months, uh, watching them all at home, to being in you know, quite literally this palace of cinema and seeing the new works from the world's foremost auteurs. It's like going from being cold turkey for two years to just having needles of heroin in every uh, patch of skin in your entire body. Um, Or so I imagine. But the uh, so that that has been that has been fun. Um, And I think there's a general vibe of appreciation. You know, the famous canned booze have kind of been absent this year. Um, You know, to a certain extent, none of the films really deserved it. There was reports of smatterings of booze from French press. Um, about Wes Anderson's *The French Dispatch* today, but I think the general consensus on that one has been pretty strong. Um, and so those were just some petty outliers, it would seem. But the French press are always on their own beat here. Uh, but the festival got started on a rocky note with, uh, on certainly a polarizing one, with Leos Carax's *The Net*, which is going to be coming out in the United States via Amazon the beginning of August. Um, sort of the last film from an earlier era of the Amazon film distribution. World where they were really tour driven and going hog wild, um, and Leo Skarox is certainly not being reined in by anybody. You may have seen Holy Motors, which was his last feature a long time ago, back in 2012, I believe. Um, and before that, he made you know Lovers on the Bridge, Pollex, um, and uh, the, among others. But the um, in that film a musical with music from Sparks, who so recently featured in Edgar Wright's documentary, starring Adam Driver. As a very hostile, self-loathing—I I, I mean, technically, comedian, stand-up comedian—but his act does not really fit into the parameters you think of that job. And uh, Marion Cotillard in an English language role, which is dodgy ten out of ten times, as far as I'm concerned, uh, as his opera star partner, romantic interest. They have a child. It's a marionette. Her name is Annette. There are lots of singing. He sings while he goes down on her, he sings while they're walking through the woods, just repeating the words, I love you so much, ad nauseum. The first 10 minutes were completely electrifying, soul meets body, or leaves body experience. It made me feel like truly the movies were back, and then the rest of it just felt uh, hostile to me. (laughs) I was, uh, for a movie that I've been looking forward to for about five years now, uh, it was a really difficult come down, Um, even being back in the movies, it's not always... Sunshine and roses, but things picked up after that. We're already at the, fest- the point of the festival where my mind is well scrambled. But if I can remember what I've seen, um, there, you know, there's Nadav Lapid, who's a brilliant Israeli filmmaker um, who made Synonyms a few years ago, uh, has only gotten angrier and more intense about Israeli self-national identity, and the masculinity that attends to it, and uh, You know, how it's possible to sort of love your fellow country people, even if they're sort of complicit on the sinking ship that you're all on. It's a fascinating, angry, vituperative movie, um, par for the course of what he's doing. And it really kicked things off with a bang after Annette anyway. um, The director's Fortnite, which is a sidebar can, um, not in the main competition, has – and is always strong, is always – had a number of the best films of a given year, but really this year came swinging out of the gates with the early highlight of the festival, which is Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir Part 2, the sequel to The Souvenir Naturally from a few years ago. You may remember with Tilda Swinton's Donner, Honor Swinton Byrne, this autobiographical look at Joanna Hogg's first love uh, to a heroin addicted, a hey, hey, um, guy in the 80s as she was starting film school in London. And the second film picks up shortly after the first one leaves off, where uh, Joanna Hogg Standen is making is is fully invested in film school, with despite having some other things on her mind, and making a film about the events of the first film. And then we see that film and we eventually get to a sort of inspector gadget inception, like film within a film within a film, as the meta-element of it um, complicates itself further and further, and it's just absolutely rapturous. I think more emotionally accessible in a way than the first one, even if it's entirely dependent on you having seen the first one. So hard to say more accessible overall, but truly a brilliant film as good as anything I've seen this year. Um, and the same is basically true of, of Koganata's second film, After Yang, which is uh, his follow-up to Columbus, um, which I know is a favorite on this podcast and elsewhere. Um, it's really found a fan base for itself. And this, After Yang, stars uh, Colin Farrell as a um, as a man in the near future, who is essentially grieving or begins to grieve the death of or the malfunction of uh, the Chinese sibling helper robot who they have brought in to help sort of um, acclimate their human daughter who they, he he and his wife um, have adopted from China. So he's sort of like a, literally a cultural construct of Chinese-ness who's meant to sort of um, be a friend, a sibling, a cultural resource to her. Uh, And when Yang, the robot, stops working, um, Colin Farrell's character quickly realizes that he is not as easy to dispose of as, say, a toaster or any sort of other household appliance, but that um, there are real implications to a machine that is that human-like, that has this sort of reservoir for memory, that may even drift into AI territory, love him and his daughter in particular, or anyone, as much as his daughter loved Yang. Um, and it's a really a, a beautiful beautiful film about, about memory and what it means to be human and uh, all sorts of other things, and very hushed in the same way that Columbus was. But um, another extraordinary highlight. Uh, man, this could go on for way too long. I think this is always what we say not to do in these segments. Just ramble and ramble on. and My cotta is still sitting there, but um, you know the other films. I should look. Bear with me. I can't edit this. Maybe Dave can, but he shouldn't. I haven't even taken my Ambient yet, which I feel like is violating a sacred, fighting in the warm tradition of how I do these festival dispatches. Um, yes, there was a, an African film from Chad called Lingui. Oop, my roommate's room. Um. I'll do, is that Ann Thompson? It is. I Anne. I'm recording an audio dispatch on my stupid podcast I make with my friends. Oh, you're doing a podcast? I mean, it's not live. I'm recording a voice note that I'm going to send to them. Do you have any well wishes to people back in America? <laughs> <laughs> I think that cackling is a no. I'll finish this later. Yeah, guys. Uh, I'm coming to you now, from about 24 hours later, with a mystery flavor Twizzler, half in my mouth, but I brought from the uh, Dwayne Reed in Brooklyn, and uh, it's been getting pretty stale in my bag over the last week and change. The desperate times call for desperate measures, and I'm still on the hunt of trying to crack the Da Vinci Code of what kind of flavor of Twizzler this mystery really is. I think it's a grape ish. Grape ish. Anyway, uh, I'm glad that I didn't entirely get to finish my recording last night because it's a pretty big day at Cannes here. But before we get there, there was also the French Dispatch, uh, the new Wes Anderson movie, which premiered to much uh, hoopla earlier in the festival uh, with Timothy Chalamet and his like metal jacket, or whatever was going on. And um, yeah, it's you know it, it's an anthology. It's structured like an issue, an old issue of the New Yorker. And like all anthologies, there are a lot of highs and lows. It's really difficult for Wes Anderson to achieve the same kind of emotional undertow he has in a film of a similar milieu, like the Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, It's funny. Uh, There are bits, some bits, but there are funny bits, some bits better than others. It is maybe the most visually inventive, certainly the most visually restless thing he's ever made. But um, I definitely miss the lack of sort of a coherent emotional through line. So it's kind of mid tier Anderson for me um and the big story today was uh Titan by Julie DeCarnau, who made Raw 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 a few years ago Raw a movie that many of you listening to this may have seen uh, She-Back Baby and she brought this cinema with her cuz uh, her new movie's fucking wild um it's really hard to it's really hard to talk about Titan without giving away too much I think I was able to thread the needle to my satisfaction anyway on the internet and in my review. But um, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, I should say less. I mean, if you're going to see certain things about it on Twitter, that's one thing. But just know that it's bug nuts wild. Um, is, it is on par with uh, Raw in terms of how demented things get. Um, I've seen a couple of people say that they thought that the the Metaphors at work here and the what the fuckery were to like less of a satisfying end for them, but I got more out of this one, I think. Um, it's a very surprising movie, and I mean, even beyond the shock value of it, but it's going to be a very crucial movie to see with a crowd later this year. Uh, when Neon releases really- Hey,
0: this is Dave, I can't fix this uh, back to normal
3: or screaming, um, and not in. Well, not in horror so much as discomfort. Um, but, I mean, there are other movies. There's Ashgar Farhadi has a new movie, uh, in which, to my mind, is his best since the separation. It's called A Hero. It's basically about a guy who's in jail for failing to repay a debt who stumbles upon a bag full of money. And it's always a great start to a film. Um, the fate of that man is always going to be dependent upon the person who is telling the story. Uh, If you are finding a bag of money in an Ashgar for a movie, you are probably in for a very ethically complicated ride. Um, But that was quite good. Um, I don't know. We don't need to go over every movie. I've already spoken far too long. A couple movies coming up. One, Memoria by Apachap Pong, where's the back all? His first movie since Uncle Boon Me. I will not be here when it screens. I'll be uh, on the first leg of my flight home. Um, bummer for me. I'm sure everyone else out there is crying over that um, on my behalf. But, but I am going to be able to cover Belle uh, from Moro Hosada, who made uh, Mirai and Summer Wars and anime, can, anime hashtag anime it's big deal. Um, this movie is a super future. Like it's a hyper-modern, slightly futuristic combination between uh, Beauty and the Beast, and Belle as the title, and social media culture as we know it today, and people, young people in particular, feeling aggrieved on there. It's a fascinating mashup. I actually can't talk about it quite yet because it is embargoed into its world premiere on Thursday, but um, that's one off-the-beaten-path highlight from the fest. But yeah, that's what's going on. I am on ambient this time. Uh, I am very, very ready to get back to see my kid. Uh, I'm really hoping to get home in time to have him still be awake on Thursday night and run down the hallway and scream, "Dada!" and give me the biggest and bestest hug he's ever given me. Um, otherwise, I'm going to have to like stir him from his crib and he's just going to be like, "Dada," confused, and then maybe start crying. But you know what? I can put up with that. I, I can send the wife to bed. I will uh, ride out Thursday night with Asa if that's what it takes to see him. Anyway, this has been real. Uh, two more movies tomorrow. One by Sean Baker. His first is Florida Project called Red Rocket, starring Simon Rex. And the other is Jacques Adiard's new movie, adapted from Adrian Tomine, a graphic novel co written by Celine Shama. So, still so something to look forward to. Michelle back home. Keep on keeping on. See you soon. Bye.
0: I can give you what you want but you got to go home with me I
1: some good got Well guys, I did watch No Sudden Move. Cuz it's on HBO Max and it's a Steven Soderbergh movie. Not to say that I have seen uh, all the Soderberghs cuz he makes a lot of stuff, uh, but you know, he's a he's someone who gets an automatic level of interest. Uh, it's a heist movie. Starring Don Cheadle and Benicio del Toro as these two like relatively uh low level Detroit uh not gangsters really, just kinda like fixer guys. They'll just kinda do criminals, what someone pays I them think to do. Criminals. Is the word like low criminals. criminals. And each of them there's like two different gangster bosses in town who I'm going to be honest, I, the plot of this movie had me lost for a long it's time. It's pretty twisty And turn. I think that's probably intentional, or at least, like, it doesn't, like, because it doesn't really matter who you find out is backstabbing who, because, like, someone shows up, and then a dinner confrontation ends with somebody dead, and you're like, okay, where are we going next? And then it all kind of builds up to a very satisfying point. Um, it's got this incredible cast surrounding them, including David Harbour, our buddy, as, uh, you know, it kind of starts with him as this, like functionary who works at a car company, who is, uh, these gangsters are there to force him to go get something from a safe. Amy Simon says his wife, uh, they have kids. Uh, Karen Culkin is kind of the third gangster who's supposed to be like holding the family in the house while this guy goes and retrieves the documents. And the story kind of unfolds from there. Uh, Julia Fox shows up of uncut gems. Uh, Brendan Fraser shows up very early on as like one of the, uh, one of the dudes bossing everybody around. uh, I like this movie a lot. I had a really good time watching it, even though I was lost, because uh, I tend to get lost in these kind of, like, who's backstabbing who things. Like, every scene of, like, two people sitting over each other and, like, talking about the deal and how the deal's gone wrong, which just like, gotten more and more satisfying as it went on. And we should probably talk about it spoilers at some point, because I think the point that it builds to and kind of the, the larger yeah, resonance yeah. <laughs> of the movie is really satisfying. Um, but you don't have to wait for that to happen, for it to just be, like, I don't know if a fucking blast to
2: watch. I was going to say we we should definitely just give some initial reactions here and go full spoilers because there's even like first act stuff that is surprising and sure. spoilery that I was like, "Oh, this movie's just going there." <laughs> um and yeah, it's it, I really liked this movie. It's it's slick as hell um and it's weird. It's like Soderbergh must have shot this with uh, anamorphic lenses old time with sure. lenses
0: from 19 the 1950s well, it sure period works. accurate lenses wow.
2: and the and the lenses distort the picture uh the edges of the picture so people look like uh, they're in a in a funhouse mirror funhouse mirror and when they're yeah. walking on the edge and suddenly they're in focus and it's so surreal and strange and there's no reason um it just looks cool and the whole movie is kind of like this looks cool this looks cool uh, let's get some actors who are great in costumes and drive I around like cool I, cars.
1: I feel like I thought of a thematic reason for it, and I'm going to throw it out once you're once you're finished.
2: Uh, no, I want to hear this immediately.
1: Because I kind of clicked into it after a while. I feel like it's got this tunnel vision energy to it, and you've got these two characters, hmm. Benicio Dottorio and Don Cheadle, who are kind of, like, really focused on the score. They're just trying to scrape enough money to do this one specific thing. They're, like, the whole movie is kind of about them seeing beyond the limits of this, like, tiny little, like, criminal world that they're part of. And, like... It makes it so that like when people are just outside of their frame, they're super distorted and they can really only see right, what's right in front of them.
2: That's yeah, I think that I is thought. a great read. I mean, I mean, we haven't talked too much about the plot sp- specifics, but Don Cheadle's character, Kurt, it's kind of his movie. Uh, he just got out of yeah. jail, but he is looking for his money. He wants to do a job and get his money and get out of here. Um, and every time, it, it kind of takes a twist on—it's on, not really a heist movie. I, you said no. that up front but I, I don't think classic well, it's it not, this yeah. is not Soderbergh. is not Soderbergh doing Ocean's 11. Let's be clear.
1: No, but they do have to retrieve something from a safe as to kick off the they plot. They do, like, but that's
2: like they, the first third because then sure. when they eventually uh, uh, get what's in the safe, then the movie becomes about like crime, the true crime of just like wheeling and dealing and trying to get the most for what they've stolen, which I thought was yeah. an interesting twist on maybe the this is not Logan Lucky this is not Ocean's 11 this is not a caper necessarily or the caper is after you do steal the thing can you manipulate everyone to get the most money that you possibly can i'm going to i'm going to disagree with the, that a little in bit in the most danger yeah
0: i'm going to disagree with that a little bit because they very specifically <laughs> adhere to the classic drama thing of basically they're set this is set in 24 hours so there is a pressure there's a pressure that this is more like it isn't a heist film in the sense that at the end they're going to be like and let's look back at how we plan this but there are (laughs) multiple plans going and there is the pressure of like you don't know if you're in a plan or if you're in a plan that's gone wrong that is very Uh
2: much like it's a bit more of the oceans 11 like where am i or the oceans 12 yeah yeah. i'm I'm kind of lost in space the space time of this crime Um, and I, and I think that really ratchets up the tension and what I liked about the movie is like, it feels like anyone could get killed. Uh, -hmm. it's the kind of, I was also watching episodes of the Sopranos before watching no, uh, sudden move move. and uh, really the terrible title. I just cannot remember it. Um, and the way that it feels like anyone could pull a gun at any time and get shot is really, I don't know. I just made, I'm thinking about it every second of the, of the, of the runtime. Um, there's real palpable danger uh, the way Soderbergh constructs this, even when they're sitting in like a boardroom in a hotel or something. Mm -hmm. um, You just feel like anyone could die at any minute, and yet you have Don Cheadle just trying to play it as cool as possible. It's fun to see uh, Benicio Del Toro plays kind of, yeah, the Ronald, the other, his number two here, um, or they're equals, but it does seem like Ronald isn't as sure that this is going to go well, and he's the guy who's just like take the money and go at a certain point Um, but even that could be disastrous you get the sense that if you break from the deals too early that could send you careening off a cliff or something
0: I really like uh, del Toro's Ronald because it's like he manages to have like this sad sack dimension that goes beyond I think like the other criminals but there isn't necessarily a scene that's built around telling us specifically that it's just how he carries himself from like conflict to conflict
3: Mm-hmm. where it's sort of
0: like, he's, he's sad. Like, I believe he wants to get out. Cheadle has a very good scene explaining why he wants to get out and what he's running to. But Benicio Del Toro has to sort of communicate that uh, through side comments. And he comes off like, I don't like this guy. He's a racist. He's the weak link. And then sort of, like, builds throughout the movie to a great understanding of the character, I think. He's a
2: really physical performer, something I guess I forget often or maybe I haven't seen the right movie, but I, I was thinking about The Last Jedi a little bit and that character that he plays, it's all really fidgety, but is also a smooth operating criminal. Um and it's not the same note that he's playing here. It's a little more human than that. But he he is still like playing by the books and when things go wrong, he looks scared. Like he looks genuinely terrified that they fucked up and now they have to undo things or like genuinely scared to walk in a room where the deal could go sour and they could get shot, maybe they should leave. Um, and he also gets to make out with uh, Julia Fox, which, i that's awesome. Sounds great for him. She
1: looks great in this movie.
2: Uh, <laughs> well, should we talk about some spoilery stuff in No Sudden Movie*? Yeah. For people who have seen this movie, because yeah, there's some surprises. And, well, Katie, what, what, what did they steal? And why is it awesome that it, that is what they stole?
1: They steal, I believe it is the plans to create a catalytic converter. Um, which is a thing that goes in cars that I guess makes them less polluting. I don't know. Um, that this is what I learned from, person, the mono- from the monologue uh, from the monologue from Matt Damon, who I did not. I saw this like a week after it came out. I didn't know he was going to be in it. I was Same. delighted that he is the one who shows up in that boardroom that's exactly like the one from Network with a uh, you've meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beal. It's very similar. Uh, you know, role in the story, uh, and he's great, and he just gives this whole monologue being like, "You motherfuckers don't." Can't really see the powers that are surrounding you. Uh, This is all, you know, he's in charge of making sure that the the auto companies can can conspire together and never have to improve their cars, Uh, which happened in real life. And they got uh, sued by the Justice Department for it. So this is basically Soderbergh setting a heist within... A real historical uh, corporate conspiracy.
2: Yeah, I did not expect the movie to end with a title card like
1: Imitation
2: <laughs> Game*, <laughs> <laughs> and then it today
1: we call them catalytic converters.
2: Yeah, it <laughs> kind of is that. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess we needed that. But just it's in so case.
1: satisfying because you're just you're just like, yeah, fuck those they get their guys. And like, you know, the entire final 10 minutes of the movie are just this massive amount of money that Matt Damon has given them changing hands until it gets back right back to Matt Damon. And you see the way that the deck is stacked completely against all of these schemers who the movie has been about. And even like David Harbour, who is just like, you know, his wife pities him and hands him her cigarette. He's just like a functionary within okay, his whole system, too. I,
2: and this, this was just a Monday. <laughs>
1: no, and it's only, Tuesday. <laughs> it's That's only exactly, Tuesday. It's such a good line.
2: <laughs> Can we talk a little about the structure of the movie? Because I was surprised... We go really deep with, so David Harbour plays the guy who works at the car company. He is having an affair with the boss's secretary or something. Amy Simons plays his wife. And Mm -hmm. I don't, I guess I haven't seen this in a movie that wasn't um, like funny games or something. But the crime, the the kickoff to the crime is them intruding in their house and holding their whole family hostage. And I was like, this is terrifying. This is really, this is really intense. And that, I felt like that was going to be the whole movie. I didn't. Yeah, and and yeah, then I we kind of like after a third of the movie's over, we sh- we shift into a different gear, which I was also. Well, no, uh, it's at. not.
0: It's and not even. It's like it's like thirty five minutes because yeah. I remember like looking at the t- runtime, being like, I feel like we're in the end game. I'm like, no, this yeah, is- yeah.
1: And uh, Kieran Culkin gets shot, and I mean, Kieran you're like, gets oh shit, shot this in the is isn't what I thought it was going to be either.
2: Um, he's so really, really that good, and like, five did it feel minutes. like? I mean, I think we're all in agreement that the movie moves. Um, So I guess it didn't feel like over long or David, you, you talked about feeling like, Oh, could the movie be over? But like, how does that, how does it, I just thought in in terms of
0: how much plot we were uh, burning through. The only thing that I kicked against a little bit was uh, by the time Don Cheadle is setting up the end game. We're only like halfway through the movie and he tells basically what he's going to do to like his bellhop friend or his friend who runs like the hotel and he like pays him off and he sets up the whole shooting of Brendan Fraser in the restaurant. And I think the end deal, but at that point at a certain point, the the movie stops to catch you up on the conspiracy you've seen so far. And that's the only part that felt um, kind of soft to me because we're dealing with things like, Frank or Atkins Watkins or whatever, who are still people we haven't known if we've seen yet, because it isn't until after that, that they get established and given a name and whatnot. Like, I didn't know Brendan Fraser was Doug Jones until like the end where they're like, and you get him for the murder of Doug Jones. And I'm like, Oh, that's that guy's name.
1: Do you really need that? His, he's not, he's not the part I was as confused about. It's Don Teele's whole plan where I got a little bit lost where he's like, like, the whole shooting of Brendan Fraser scene, like I didn't really get that's what that scene was headed toward. I didn't follow who was supposed to have the money and when and where. And, like, I didn't really mind it. But it did, like, maybe it, I did feel like it dragged, too, because I couldn't quite follow well,
0: it. Well, I mean, way. if if it's it's an Ed Solomon script, so, like, the a, a guy read all the Bill and Ted movies, uh, it, it, he's coming in, and that's where the magic trick, I think, of the movie is hidden, because I do think if you follow exactly what he's saying... And when he calls uh, Watkins or uh, the the other mob boss and sets up, sets up the final deal, um, I think that he just says that th- what he thinks is going to happen at the end of the movie, and we're supposed to think that he's double-crossed until he's let out of the trunk at the end. Because mm-hmm. I think that's what the reversal of the movie is. What the actual happens with the movie is it's just so entertaining from scene to scene and the performances are good enough that all the names that get thrown around and the past connections I like, kind of just let roll off me. I assume yeah. that because it is this quality of caliber of filmmaking at the end is going to kind of feel like it comes together. And that's what Matt Damon's speech does. Mm-hmm. And when he gets the money at the end, it's like, even if I did follow everything, it wouldn't have mattered. It all yeah. would have gone back to the white businessman
1: at the end. Went, it all went back to Matt Damon. Yeah.
2: Did you like so it, uh, really good. Ray Liotta in this movie? Uh Yeah. You didn't mind sure. him in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I love that he, I again, I just, I love that people could show up and maybe they'll die. Like, it doesn't matter how famous, I like movies where it doesn't matter how famous you are and Soderbergh can like call the right people and get the right people in this movie, but anyone yeah. can die and anyone can die in grisly ways and uh, his character, Leota's character Frank just like complicates, it's that scene where Brendan Fraser dies too. Um, just like, it's a mess. I love messy things that feel like real messes. They're not, Calculated. There, it feels like there was a mistake made on the day of shooting. Someone got hurt, and then the whole movie had to change or something. <laughs> yeah. um, that's how this—the sensation of that scene, wherever, when they start shooting up the 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 restaurant. Um, the only part I think the only weak part for me was maybe John Ham. Like, I didn't really—he's
0: doing his get thing. The
2: detective thing. Did that? Did that pay because off? They, can't they kind
0: of—they kind, of, kind of have to leave that behind, you know? Right. Yeah, he because really like, just
1: needs to be there for the plot to end where it does.
0: Right, he needs to be. He needs to be there to get the sun to crack to add some sort of tension to the family, and then he needs to be there to be outside of the hotel, so we're wondering what we're doing, and then he needs to be there to be paid off. Like there's mm-hmm. the cops don't do anything else because it turns out they're all corrupt.
1: Yeah, I do
2: like the end when Matt Damon gives John Hamm's character a uh, a bottle of, of the eighty
1: eight dollar bottle of whiskey. <laughs> yeah, he's really just so good. pathetic.
2: He's like, ooh. Sure.
1: It just made like, you know, if you spend time thinking about, like, you know, how there are people who are wealthy in the world on a level that you cannot comprehend, this movie is basically about that, like, within a pretty satisfying thriller. And, like, I feel like Don Teetle does get his happy ending. So, like, you know, we're all trapped within capitalism, but the Don Teetles of the world get to be happy too. Yes,
2: yeah, so it was fun to watch this movie the same week that Richard Branson went to space, <laughs> preparing to go to space. And Matt Damon played the. Status bastard, rich person. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess that's what I was wondering. So Don Cheadle definitely m- meant. I mean, this was his whole plan, right? To just take this amount of money and get out of this situation alive. Um, good plan. Yeah,
0: yeah, it was a good plan. He was going to take the three seventy-five from Matt Damon and then make the one twenty-five from the other car guy go to the head gangster guy. it, it worked out. Really good yeah. plan. Uh, interesting uh, setup, and then just title this movie something else. Could they not title it? <laughs> could they not title it about cars because that'd be giving the MacGuffin away? Yeah, the converter From, like, it takes place or in, something, or it takes maybe? place in Detroit. Like, do some m- motors. Well, motor Detroit City. is already taken. Oh, holy
1: motor. motors. Oh, holy uh, motors. No, but uh, Steven Starbuck like, he's got movies called like The Informant, Haywire. The laundromat. Let them all talk. Like all a lot of his titles. The like, laundromat kind of is the anything. worst
2: title of a movie ever.
1: That one, I that one, <laughs> the I have
0: laundromat. not seen. Well, it's like they talk about you know making moves above their stature, but there's nobody cautioning against a sudden move in this thing. Everybody,
1: <laughs> everybody's making
0: sudden moves. That's the point of the movie.
1: I know. That's how Brendan Fraser ends up dead.
0: Well, no oh, you may think move. maybe they were just, just like, what does somebody say in the movie that could be a title? Well, I, I have this slide. the The cool thing about Brendan Fraser is uh, I love his performance. When he first shows up, I like didn't notice it was him when he's recruiting people at the very beginning of the movie. But then when he got to the the scene where he gets shot in the the room, if you look at him, he's giving like a Looney Tunes level like I understand nod to everything <laughs> Frank says. Like I think Brendan Fraser gave like a comedic performance that they edited it into this drama movie. <laughs> <laughs> so watch Brendan Fraser on the sides here. He's really he's really bringing something that didn't make it all the way. I mean that's the, the
2: Soderbergh touch. I think it. You mentioned the informant and I often thought about yeah. that movie during this. Karen Colkin is having a ball being uh-huh. an asshole um, and deserved to get shot in the head because it sucked. Uh, why did he start going? He goes crazy when they get back to the house. He kind of like, well, because see, he's going to execute the whole family.
1: Yeah, he's going to try to run up with all the money for himself. He's pulling a sudden move and he's going to kill everybody and, and leave. No sudden or, moves. broke okay, the rules. Yeah, no sudden moves. And, so, and Don Cheadle figures it out and shoots him. But they had all been set up. This is the, this is the thing. It's just nonstop double crosses. Yeah. I should watch The Informant again. I haven't seen it since it came out. And there's a ton of great people in it who I like, didn't even know about.
2: Just that that heightened everything can be funny, and it's interesting. I think Coen Brothers are often automatically the like if you have drama or crime caper that's a little funny. It's a co- it's Coheny. yeah. Um, but I'd, maybe Soderbergh deserves a bit more of the this. This also isn't a version of that.
0: It isn't as cynical. Like I, I mean, it's not yeah. saying that everybody it's gets not... away. I don't think it's as cynical as Don, like a Don Coen Cheadle's Brothers movie.
1: It's not as cynical as like Burn After Reading. Like you get like you know, Don Cheadle achieving what he wants to achieve.
2: I mean, I do really like the scenes, just the pure dramatic scenes of Don Cheadle being like, I want what I need. I, I want to get out of here. I want my money. I want my... And then that scene where he's in the room... was Is that is it the bellhop or is it just another friend where he's hiding out in their house? He's like, get out of my house. Like, yeah. I made a life for myself. And uh-huh. you being here jeopardizes everything. I don't want you here. Um yeah. sorry. Was that the bellhop or... Yeah, I think so. The friend, his friend that owns the hotel. But I thought that scene was pretty poignant, too. And, um, it's, it's clever. I mean, it's, it's, it really brings great life to a movie like this, which could just be all caper, um, to have those down moments where Don Cheadle gets to be a great actor. Uh, I'm like, oh, right. You've been stuck in Marvel land too. Um, and I went looking through Don Cheadle's filmography, reminded myself that he directed a Miles, uh, biopic, uh, miles again uh that no one saw and i'm just like man what where have you been what are you doing here you are a great actor um and he kills it in these kind of quiet moments too i feel like there's a lot
0: more that this movie touched on and then sort of just like leaves be like is amy simons character like having a romantic relationship with the neighbor
1: yeah unclear Maybe like the neighbor wants to have a romantic relationship with her, and she's because she's like, we could go away
0: just the two of us. And before Uh that, she's like, I don't know how you do any of this, like any of this, like living. And so it's like, oh, we're going to get into this weird side plot about fifties housewives, and then nope, that's the end of it.
1: Or the whole Noah Jup character and trying to like live like be the dad of the of the household, like with his father kind of like checking out of it, or like. The secretary running off with some other dude from in the office at David Harper's place. Like, it is a vast cast of characters who all, like, pop up for a half second. Yeah, and
2: they all get fleshed out. Uh, Yeah, casting Frankie Shaw in that role that could easily just be two scenes of, like, you're the person he he has sex with, and that's it. Uh That's who you are. But she has authority, and she's the one—I think they have a flashback where she is plotting and planning— no, ch- no, she, they
0: meet up in the hotel after he won't be allowed into his wife's friend's house or whatever, and he's like, here's some things I was supposed to tell you two days ago. So uh, it's not a flashback, it's just he chickened out, and she lays it all out. for. That's a great scene. Yeah, it's interesting,
2: yeah. There's, there's time in this movie, in the economy of storytelling, to put David Harbour and Frankie Shaw in a, in a room, these two characters who are eventually not that important to the plot of it all, to, to deal with their shit um and it's doesn't slow the movie down at all. I just it's all thoroughly entertaining and and character driven. It's strange. It's like an, a movie for adults. I don't know. Oh, weird. Very weird experience.
0: Movies for adults. That'll never catch on.
2: <laughs> well, no sudden move. It's on HBO Max. For some reason it's not in theaters. Uh, I guess Soderbergh has a deal oh. with HBO Max. Um the, that he's making movies time, for HBO dude. Max now he's he's like one of the only people who's cool with the streaming era he's made a Netflix movie oh, HBO Max for, he does I HBO mean, he made
1: the Nick for Cinemax like he's always been just do the work who cares platform. where
2: it ends up let <laughs> yeah. people see it um, no
1: Soderbergh is uh he'll put his stuff anywhere
0: yeah do the... it except don't do a podcast There's enough of that
1: well if he, he wants would have to be on podcast, our podcast
0: then. he, could... I mean, he could He could have our podcast
1: Steven Soderbergh any minute come be on our podcast mm-hmm. That does it for this week's show. I won't be back next week. I'm going on vacation. Patches thinks I go on too many vacations. I go on the I did not say you go on too
2: many vacations. I say you
1: <laughs> make use
2: of your time and you go on many vacations.
1: There you go. Uh, anyway, you guys will be back. Uh, maybe you'll talk about Loki. Maybe you'll talk about something else. In the meantime, tell the people who you are.
2: I'm Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. We have a website, Fighting in the War Room. Dot com, where you can listen to all of our episodes. We talked about the AI episode last week. We talked about Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. We wrote, we talked about that on the, uh, the Quarter Quell this past year. <laughs> 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 uh, lots of lots of old episodes to go back and listen to now that you've seen the movies. Fightingintheworm.com.
0: And I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can follow me on Twitter at DA7E. You can also listen to me on The Storm, a Lost Rewatch podcast, we're going to be finishing by the end of August, so if your favorite part of Lost, for some reason, is the final season, boy do we have a lot of shows for you. You can also leave this show a review on the iTunes, or I think it's called the podcast app, you, you know, the Apple Podcast Store. <laughs> you want to leave us a review, because if you don't, we're going to find something you don't want to hear and put it on the podcast, this is my promise to you.
1: Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair on the Little Goldman Men podcast, where we're talking this week about the Emmy nominations. They're happening. Who gets nominated? It's going to be dramatic, one way or another. It is. Uh, I don't know. Something always gets left out. People are, are people are going to be mad. What's even up for, are... like Best Show? Oh my God! You want to do this right now?
2: One division.
1: Uh, Ted Lasso, The Crown. Oh, the Bridgeton. crown will win best drama,
2: then, and then Ted Lasso wins best comedy. Yeah,
1: okay. yeah, and then yeah. we'll see if uh, Mayor Beast Town uh, wins limited series or if it's I Made a Story. People are going to be mad about I Made a Story one way or another.
2: Yeah, right that's backwards. good. That's a good point.
1: Uh, anyway. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K A T E Y R I C H. We're all on Twitter at F I T W R, where you should tell us your favorite performance in No Sudden Move, or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was.
0: In honor of Space Jam, a new legacy, and LeBron James' refusal to say if he's vaccinated, what cartoon character would you want to hang out with?
1: Thanks for listening, and they'll be back talking to you next
2: week. <laughs> Ring. Hey. Like
3: a tambourine, hey. like once upon a rhyme. I knew this girl and she was fine. It's everything out the kind of girl I describe her like 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 Michael Jordan when he's froze in the pose of a jump man. Top flight security
2: on these hoes, man. She drop it low only for me to pick her up. When she's liquored up, I'm leaving my fingerprints on her butt. A cut hut and at attention as we stand for this one man. General Patton, boy stop,
1: We think she come in, loving the way that I'm nicking her down, boy. You bluffing. Love it. But that nigga like BB, straight up royal flushin'.
3: But this ain't about payin'. Me. her give me open my sugar, and she go
1: hard for me. Even take a I'm done.